Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. I invite you to turn to chapter 2 in Colossians tonight. Now, if you were with us last week on Sunday evening, you know we began Colossians chapter 2, and we looked at the first five verses of the chapter last week, where Paul made his clearest statement yet of his purpose in writing this letter of Colossians. He wrote that he was struggling with a great effort to encourage or to strengthen the Colossians so that no one would delude them with plausible arguments that would pull them from the truth, but rather that he might continue to rejoice in their firmness of faith. That's what he uh, wrote in the first five verses. Now, verse six, where we're beginning tonight, begins with the word, therefore. And of course, if you have the word, therefore, that means what's about to follow is being written in light of what was just said. Therefore, or that is because of Paul's eager desire for the Colossians' firmness of faith, he has a set of instructions for them. And that's what we're going to get in verses 6 through 10. So would you follow with me as we read Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 10? Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted in him, built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that your spirit would hold Christ up before us tonight, and that we would grow in him and be guarded in him in the firmness of our salvation, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. It was a couple of months ago I was staining the post of my mailbox And, of course, when you pull out stain, the first thing you hopefully do, unless you're experienced, which I'm not overly experienced, is you flip the can around and you read the warning label. In fact, if you do any project, just about any product you're going to use, you have a warning label on the back. And those warning labels typically tell you three things. First, the warning label tells you how you're supposed to use the product. You know, you're supposed to apply it this way, or you're supposed to allow this amount of time between coats, so you have to let it dry and use it in these situations and so forth. And then after telling you how to use it, then it will tell you how not to use it. And usually the warning has a number of, of dire warnings of irreversible bodily harm, possibly death. Uh, and, and you know, of course, that they're, you know, every company has to kind of save their back in a litigious society. I noted that uh, Gorilla Glue has a warning on the back not to use it in your hair. 
Now, that's somewhat of an interesting one until I found out that someone did use it in their hair in order to try to create dreadlocks, and then when they had to shave their head, they sued Gorilla Glue, and so now Gorilla Glue includes the warning on the back of their label. So you get how to use the product, then you get how not to use the product with all the warning labels, and then for those who are really interested, you get the explanation for why what you've just read is the case. It gives you the details. It might say, and this is where it gets technical, you know, something like trans oxide pigments will allow for the best coverage and, or, or petroleum distillate is flammable and causes shortness of breath and harm to your nerves, therefore. So you get the reasoning for those who are, are interested in it. And when I first read this passage in Colossians tonight, the first thing I thought of was the warning label, because I think Paul has the same outline. First, as Paul seeks to encourage steadfastness and maturity in Christ and to warn against false teaching, he tells the Colossians what they should do, and then he warns the Colossians of what they should not do, and then he gives a reason for why that is the case. And so that's our outline tonight, what we are to do, what we are not to do, and why that is the case. So let's start verses 6 and 7. Paul tells the Colossian believers what they ought to do or how they ought to live for the sake of the firmness of their faith. Paul says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Now, I want to I notice a number of details and almost walk word by word through this first sentence here. First, Paul writes, they are to walk or to live the same way that they received Christ at first. And that's very important. In other words, our faith in Christ or our life in Christ is not as if first you receive Christ and then you go on to live in some different way or on a different basis. It's not as if you receive Christ by faith and then you go through a certain set of works or deeds or a system that maintains our faith. Paul talks about that in, in the book of Galatians more thoroughly. But no, we are to walk in the same way that we received Christ. Well, if that's the case, how did they receive Christ at first? Well, we know that they received Christ by faith, following Jesus and entrusting themselves to Jesus and the sufficiency of his redemption on their behalf. The Colossians didn't earn this salvation. They didn't bargain for this salvation. They didn't achieve this salvation. No, they received it. And that's what Paul says. You received it by faith. Of course, what do you receive? You receive something that's given to you uh, as a gift. The Colossians chose to receive this gift or accept it in faith as the truth that they would believe and follow. And that is now what they are to continue to do as they walk through life. They are to receive Jesus Christ or follow Jesus Christ in faith, entrusting themselves to him and acting on his word as truth. And that's our pattern for how we continue. In the same faith, with the same receiving faith with which we started. Now I want you to notice, because I think this is significant, that Paul specifically said they trusted Christ Jesus the Lord. Now, we know who Jesus is, the man uh, who grew up in Nazareth and then had his public ministry, died and rose again. But then he specifically calls him Christ Jesus. And that word Christ 
is the word meaning the anointed one. If you think of the word Messiah, Christ and Messiah as names belong together for our Lord Jesus Christ. It means that Jesus was the promised one, the chosen one, the one anointed and sent by God in fulfillment of all his promises to save Israel from their sins and also to be a light for the salvation of the Gentiles as well. When you think back through the Old Testament and think of the promises that God made to Israel, I am sending a shoot from the stump of Jesse. I am sending a promised one who, like David, will shepherd his people. When you think of those promises, that anointed one that God would send, one who will also show up to be a light for all the nations, that's Jesus Christ, the anointed one. But not only is he God's chosen one, he is also the Lord, Christ Jesus the Lord. To call Jesus the Lord in, uh, definitionally means he's the sovereign one, but there's more going on here. It also means that he is God himself. Because when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, the Lord, kurios, the word here, is the title that translates Yahweh, the God of Israel. The name of God is translated as kurios. And so when the Colossians trusted in Jesus and, and in his redemption, they were trusting him, the man Jesus, as the anointed, promised Messiah and as the Lord himself, God himself, who had come to them and taken on human flesh. So Paul says, in the same conviction that they received Christ Jesus the Lord, with that same faith and trust in him, they are now to walk in him. Okay, so we're going word by word here a little bit, but I think it is quite significant. Interesting, isn't it, that Paul says they are to walk in Christ. If we were talking naturally in English, we would probably say something like we would walk with Christ, or maybe we would follow after Christ. Those would be more natural phrases, but Paul doesn't say that. He says they are to walk in Christ. And it's not because the Greeks talked differently than we do in English. This is actually quite significant. To say that we are to walk in Christ is to emphasize the nature of our relationship with him or our union with him. In fact, in Christ, if you would begin to work through Paul's letters, you would find that in Christ is his favorite description of a Christian. What is a Christian? It is a person who is in Christ. Christ. It's over and over and over in Paul's letters. I don't think you can really understand Paul's theology without understanding what it means to be in Christ. This phrase represents the fact that when we have put our trust in Christ, we are brought into an intimate union and communion with Jesus. As the reformer John Calvin famously put it, so long as we are separated from Christ, Nothing that he suffered or did for the salvation of the human race is of the least benefit to us. To communicate to us the blessings which he received from the Father, he must become ours and to dwell in us. And that happens by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit who is the bond by which Christ binds us to himself. What Calvin is saying is here is that when we trust Christ by faith, Christ sends his Holy Spirit to dwell in us who becomes a glue, a bond who intimately unites us to Christ so that Christ is dwelling in us 
by the Spirit. And yet, of course, Christ is so much greater than us, it would not be as appropriate to say that he dwells in us, although that is true, but that we are caught up into him, that we dwell in intimate union and communion with him. Salvation, then, if we think about it in these terms, is not a thing we're given as if God says, you believe in me, say you trust in me, and I'll let you come to heaven. No, salvation is nothing less than an intimate relationship with Jesus himself, whereby we are so completely united to Christ and filled by Christ when he sends his spirit to dwell in us that the best definition for us as Christians becomes in Christ people. Maybe that's still a little bit hazy. I like the way the Australian theologian Rory Shiner puts it. He says, being in Christ is kind of like an airplane. I think, well, that's an unusual analogy. But he puts it this way. He said, if you wanted to go from New York to London, and an airplane was going from New York to London, what relationship do you need to have with that airplane? Well, you don't need to follow the airplane. That wouldn't work out too well, would it? And so you have some people who say, well, we need to follow uh, Jesus. Well, okay, that's true, but that's not sufficient. Or, nor, nor do we need to try to imitate the good example of the airplane. You imagine what that would look like in, in the same way for us if we think, well, we just need to try to live like Jesus. No, that's not sufficient. No, if you need to go to New York, to London, you need to get in the airplane. You need to be in that plane so that where the plane goes, you go. What is true of the plane becomes true of you, and it's all thanks to the power of the plane, not thanks to your power. And that's something of what it is for us to be united to Christ, so that where Christ goes, we go, so that what is true of Christ becomes true of us, because we are caught up into intimate union and fellowship with him, and it's all thanks to his power, not to ours. And so when Christ sends his spirit to live in us, and unite us to Christ. Where he goes, we go. As he lives, we live. As he is justified and accepted by the Father, we are justified and accepted in him. Since he is God's son, we are welcomed as God's children. Since he is holy and righteous before the Father, we are set apart for holiness and righteousness before God. And it all happens because we are in Christ and united to him. So here's this instruction. As we received Christ, we received him by faith. So we are to walk in Christ. That is, we are to live our lives in this intimate fellowship with Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit, with the same faith and trust in him with which we received him in the first place. Maybe I'll give you one more analogy because I don't want it to be just abstract theology. Maybe it's a little bit like a marriage. On your wedding day, your marriage is sealed as you say your wedding vows to one another. But what is the rest of your life together but living out those vows that you said on your wedding day? It's not like you vow to each other and then you have to do something totally different uh, that that you, you live out for the rest of your life. No, every day you are to live in light of and consistent with and practicing the vows that you made on the day that you were married in intimate fellowship and union with each other. 
And so it is with Christ as we receive him by faith and are united to him. So now we are to walk day by day in fellowship with him in Christ, living it out, living consistent with that receiving in faith and trust that we began with. So here is Paul's central instruction. As you received Christ, Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Now, if you move on to verse 7, I want you to notice that there's four phrases that describe what happens when we walk in Christ or what this walking is supposed to look like. Being rooted in him, built up in him, established in him, and abounding in thanksgiving. Now, these words in, in Greek are participles. I realize maybe that brings up some uh, PTSD from your middle school grammar class. But participles are words that modify the verb or the main, the main action here. And so these participles, each one of these phrases is modifying or telling us what this walking in Jesus looks like or what happens when we are walking in Christ. Being rooted like a tree suggests that our nutrients, our spiritual food, and our security comes from our attachment to Jesus Christ. Being built up like a building suggests that we continue to grow in knowledge and righteousness and in fruitfulness into the people God has planned for us to be because of our communion with Christ. And being established like a foundation suggests that our firmness, our immovable assurance and security and faith in which we were taught is found in our union with Christ. And all the while, our walk is to be constantly abounding in thanksgiving. Now, if you'd permit me to dwell in your grammar class for just another minute, do you remember the difference between a passive verb and an active verb? A passive verb was action that was done to you, like, I was picked up from school. I didn't do the action there. Someone else picked me up, right? It's some, someone else doing something for me. Well, these first three participles, these first three actions of being rooted in Christ, built up in Him, and established in the faith, faith are all passive verbs, suggesting that these are things that God works in us by the power of His Spirit when we are walking by faith in Christ. In other words, the command for us is to walk in Christ as we received him, in faith, in communion with him. And as we do so, Paul is telling us the Lord will be rooting us in him, building us in him, establishing us in the faith in him by the spirit that works in us. And this is such a great blessing. Walk in him by faith. And there is a promise of the active work of God in our lives, which feeds us secures us, builds us, and holds us fast in him. Isn't that a beautiful assurance? But then there's the last participle, abounding in thanksgiving. And guess what? That one's not passive. That's active, which means it is to describe our response, what we are to be doing. In other words, abounding in thanksgiving is what should characterize our lives and our response as we walk in the Lord. Praise to God, joy and gratitude for who he is and what he has done for us should be the primary characteristic marking our lives. We are to be abounding in Christ people or abounding in thanksgiving people as we walk in Christ. And it turns out 
this is something that Paul actually says across his letters. He says it here to the Colossians. He said it to the Thessalonians as well. 1 Thessalonians 5.18, rejoice always, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Same theology. In Christ, rejoice, give thanks in all circumstances. It's the same thing he said to the Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We could keep going. But the point that you get, he says it to the Philippians multiple times when he talks about rejoicing, presenting everything by prayer with thanksgiving. Do not grumble, but give thanks. Chapter 2 of Philippians. So it's in Paul's letters over and over again. And I wonder if you'll just pause for a minute and reflect on that as a follower of Christ. Again and again throughout Paul's letters, he keeps coming back to this chief mark of a follower of Christ being to have a life abounding in thanksgiving to God. So would you join me in examining our hearts and our lives for a minute? Holding up a mirror to see if what you see in the reflection is an abounding in thanksgiving in all circumstances, life, in Christ. Now, just to clarify, this is not about becoming an optimist, right? I, I tend to be optimistic by personality. That doesn't mean I'm fulfilling this better than someone who's left less optimistic than me. No, we are to give thanks in all circumstances. This suggests that our abounding thanksgiving to God is not related to everything going comfortably or happily or to whether I think things are going to get better or turn out decently or not. No, in all circumstances, we are to be overwhelmed with gratitude to God for what He has done for us in Christ. And our trust in Him that He is continuing His good work in Christ, whatever the circumstances we are facing, is to be what shapes our attitude and our response. Nor is this just putting a smile on your face. We know what it's like to put a smile on our face because we're expected to, but we really feel pretty grumpy or frustrated or angry or despairing underneath, don't we? No, that's not what we're called to either. We're called to a genuine attitude of thankfulness to the Lord that shows up in our lives because abounding in thanksgiving in Christ is what flows out from someone who's walking in Him, united to the Savior of the world. Now, this is a battle, isn't it? Some of you are thinking, that's a battle for me right this very second. If not, tomorrow morning, you'll probably have a battle for it. For some of you, this is an occasional battle when disappointments or frustrations hit. For others of you, this is a lifelong battle every minute of every day. But would you pray for and strive for and pursue a response to the Lord by meditating on who Christ is and what he has done and walking in him such that you could be described as an abounding and thanksgiving person? Well, that's what we are to do. Walk in Christ as we received him, rooted in him, built up in him, established in the faith in him, abounding with thanksgiving. Spent the most time there. But let's look next to verse 8 where Paul tells us what not to do. So we're moving down the warning label here. 
We've got the instructions for what to do. Now we look to what not to do. And Paul writes, verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And I want you to notice that this is a very strong warning. This isn't Paul saying, hey, there might be some things out there. If you hear them, you probably should, you know, turn the other way. No, see to it. This is, this is a warning with a strength that suggests that the threat is real and vigilance is needed. That God's people will be in danger of being taken captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And the danger that Paul has in mind, this being taken captive by philosophy or empty deceit, is that we might be persuaded by or that we might adopt a way of thinking that is empty and in error. That there are ways of thinking and viewing the world and thinking through life that are wrong and they are empty. To put it another way, Paul is concerned that we might accept as truth something in relation to our faith or life that is in fact not true. And the result is that we will adopt something that is empty and deceitful. And we will sacrifice the satisfaction and fullness we have in Christ. Now, philosophy itself, of course, is not the problem. Philosophy is just a word that refers to a love of wisdom, the pursuit of truth, rightly motivated. And and the great uh, theologian Augustine talks about this, rightly motivated toward God and guided by faith in his word, such a love of wisdom and desire for knowledge will yield a zeal to pursue the knowledge of God and of his creation and to live for him. But the philosophy that Paul warns against is a philosophy that is empty deceit because it does not start with the primacy and the truth of God's revelation, and it does not focus on the primacy of Christ, who is the height of God's revelation. Instead, Paul points out that there are two particularly common starting points of this false philosophy we need to be on guard against. The first, he says, is philosophy and empty deceit that would be according to human tradition. You see it there in verse 8. That is thinking and reasoning that assumes as its starting point the thoughts or the traditions of men. That could be Jewish traditions that had come to supplant the Scriptures as their source of moral guidelines. Or that could be philosophical or scientific commitments that viewed our reasoning and our way of thinking and our terms of viewing things as uh, more significant or correct than the Word of God. It could be what people had believed and passed down through generations. It could have been Gentile philosophies like Stoicism that by the first century proposed an alternate approach to life that was adopted by many. We'll get to this in Colossians chapter 2, but as we start to read through Colossians 2, Paul will specifically call out some of the traditions that should not hold us captive. Traditions such as uh, prohibitions against certain foods or activities, holding on to certain festivals or food laws or the Sabbath, and the Colossians are to be on guard against them. But the common denominator in all of these is that this philosophy errs because it starts with and assumes the primacy of human reason 
human experience, human effort, or human tradition. And when that is the starting point, rather than the truth of God's revelation and the sufficiency of Christ, we are in danger. The second category that Paul warns us against, the second part uh, category of philosophy and empty deceit, is that that's according to the elemental spirits of the world. See that phrase there in verse 8. Now, I will uh, be very upfront with you. We're not exactly sure what that phrase means, what that word means. The word Paul uses here uh, literally refers to the alphabet, and so it could warn against the basic principles, sort of the starting assumptions of the world and its mindset. That's one option, that Paul would then be warning against philosophies that assumed the fundamental commitments of this world. However, the word can also refer to the elemental spirits of that people believe in in this world, things like angels, demons, and the spiritual forces involved in the world. And in the first century, there would have been a quite a move to say, well, sure, there's Jesus, but we need to think about angels, and we need to think about demons, and we need to think about these spiritual forces in addition to Christ. And so Paul could be referring uh, to these spiritual forces as something we might commit to in addition to or instead of Christ. I think, based on my reading, I lean toward this interpretation, and part of it is because when Paul starts to warn the Colossians further, down in verse 18, he specifically talks about the worship of angels and of these visions as being something that they need to be on guard against, but um, it could be either one. But whichever it is, Paul's final comment in verse 8 catches all these options, or anything that is not according to Christ. So any philosophy, any tradition that is not according to Christ and who he is in his sufficiency, we are to be on guard against. So what does this mean for us? It means that every one of us must be vigilant and aware that there are philosophies and traditions and thoughts around us that are wrong, that are in error, and that are empty. It means that our starting point in all of our thinking must be the Word of God as our highest authority. And it means the work of God in Christ is our complete sufficiency for all of life. You know how on your dashboard, in your car, when something isn't going right, the little yellow light will come up. And maybe some of you have the, the, the three-light policy. You ignore them until there's three of them on. Uh, but you should, you should have a little yellow warning light that should go off in your minds whenever we find ourselves saying, hearing, or agreeing with things like, well, everyone around me seems to be doing or thinking this, so surely it must be credible. Or, this is what we've always done. Surely that is what we should continue to do. Or, this is what my experience suggests is best. When we hear phrases like that, that warning light should come on. It means that uh, an orange warning light should go off in our minds if we find ourselves saying things like, yes, I believe in Jesus, but now I also have to, and fill in the blank of something we have to add to that, someone else we have to worship or pray to or look to or something else we have to do outside or on top of Christ. Or fill in the blank of things Christians can't do that, or they have to do that, or we need extra blessings of the Spirit, if that's no, Christ is all 
and in awe. And it means that a big, red, flashing warning light should go off in our minds if we find ourselves following the world or the standards of the day when the Scriptures say something opposite. If we say, well, I hear what Scripture's saying, but I can't believe that God would really want me to do that. I can't believe that God would really ask that. That just isn't reasonable in our day. Or surely God wouldn't send me to hell for this when I believe in in Jesus. I'm just doing what people around me are doing. No, these are phrases that are pulling us out of the sufficiency of Christ. And warning lights should be blaring in our minds if we hear them. It's so easy for us to get snookered by thinking and ideas that are not true. And we need to be on guard because we are not to live by anything that is not according to Christ. That's Paul's warning here in verse 8. So we have the instructions to walk in Christ as we have received, and we have the warning, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy or empty deceit that is not according to Christ. Finally, look at verses 9 and 10. Here, as we come toward the end, Paul explains why Why are the instructions that he gave us so important? Why are they true? Why is walking in Christ our hope? Why will anything aside from Christ fail? Well, you see Paul's answer there in verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Here we have... We have again such a beautiful statement of who Christ is. In him, the man Jesus, the whole fullness of deity, not a piece of God or someone sent from God, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus was fully man with a real human body, but he was fully God, the whole fullness of deity. Every extent of the divine nature and character and perfection dwelt in him. And naturally, if the whole fullness of God dwells in him, then what could he possibly be other than the head of all rule and authority? Because that is who God is, the creator, the king, the sovereign one over all. Now what Paul says is, if faith unites you to Jesus, you are quite literally and really being united to and brought into communion with the whole fullness of God in Christ. Which beyond any shadow of a doubt means that in Him we are going to be utterly and completely filled up. And the filling here That word for being filled could also mean to be complete, to be whole, to be utterly satisfied. All of that's wrapped up in the word that, that Paul uses here. Wholeness, completeness, fullness, to be filled. And so the question for us is if faith unites us to Christ in whom the whole fullness of the deity dwells, why in the world would we think we need something else too? Why in the world would we think that we need anything aside from Christ? Or why in the world would we expect to find this apart from Christ? Why would we go on looking for other philosophies, other ideas, other traditions, other practices? To do so would be like trying to be refreshed 
by going to jump in an old, dried-out, cracked swimming pool. Have you ever passed one of those old swimming pools that's got no water in it anymore? It's just a hole in the ground. It's cracked. That's not going to refresh you. Why would you go jump in the empty, old, cracked swimming pool of the empty philosophies and traditions of this world when we have the entire Atlantic Ocean of the fullness of the Godhead held out to us in Christ? I love the way John MacArthur put it. He put it this way in his commentary on this verse. He said, To maintain, as the Colossian false teachers did, that those who were made complete in Christ still lacked anything or needed to look to some other philosophy or tradition or some other set of works or rules to live by is utterly absurd. Those who are partakers in the divine nature have, by putting their faith in Christ through His divine power, been granted all things pertaining to life and godliness. 2 Peter 1.3 In Christ, the infinite fullness of God himself fills us and makes us complete. And so no wonder walking in him leads to rooting, building up firmness and maturity in faith. And no wonder looking to anything else leads to emptiness. That's Paul's, that's the root of Paul's theology here. And so in this last minute, before I pray, Would you just take a quick minute to consider what it means for us that by faith we are united in intimate communion with the whole fullness of God in Christ? When you find yourself weary or burdened or at a loss with life and the world pressing down on you, what do you tend to think you need to survive and to find rest and joy in life? You know, I mentioned to you last week, if you were, you were here, that for much of the end of this summer, I did not realize how weary I was and how much I needed to be meditating on the hope of the risen Christ. But as I look back, I can tell you I remember thinking multiple times, if I could just have a good long Saturday afternoon watching football, surely I'd be refreshed. If I could just have a couple days where I wasn't leaving the house, I'll be good. Don't we find ourselves thinking like that? Or if I can just work out more consistently. And of course, all those things are good. Resting is fine. Being at home with the family is good. Working out is good. But we were missing was that my devotion times were shorter. That my desire for other things to refresh me was longer. And I was missing the fullness of Christ. So do you find yourself getting into that mindset as well? I just need some more time to myself. I just want to rest and not have to go to five million places. I just need, at times, all of which might be good instincts, but none of which can replace your need and your invitation to draw near to Christ Jesus the Lord. And you know, that brings us right back to Psalm 63, which we started the worship service this morning, or this evening, where we heard... I'm thirsting for God. It's in a dry and weary land. And what was it that satisfied him with goodness? Coming to the sanctuary to behold his power and his glory where his steadfast love was better than life. And that was the meal that satisfied his soul as with rich food. So do you see the riches of that invitation? 
and the greatness of the salvation that Christ offers in himself. No wonder that this is what Paul calls us to do. As we have received Christ, so walk in him and whom the whole fullness of the deity dwells, that we might be rooted in him, built up in him, established in him. That is our strength, our hope, and our joy. It's what we need day by day, and it's my prayer for us tonight. Let's pray. Lord, how we thank you for your word. How we thank you for the richness of what Paul calls us to here in Colossians chapter 2. The whole fullness of the Godhead in Christ. May we look to him and find in him our great fullness and satisfaction and joy. May all other things, even good things, not be the solution, not be any substitute for our looking to him, for our rest, our wholeness, our joy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.